Hello and welcome to Retrospection, a podcast about old films and TV shows. My name's Colin, and get your lovely asses out of here, I'm just holding the fart. <laughs> and I'm Paul, and you know there's a special clause in my contract that says that my liver is to be buried separately with honours. You know, even if that wasn't a line from the film, it'd still be true. You knew I was going to go for that one, didn't you? I did, yeah. Uh, before we go on, we must thank our Patreon supporters, David Hurrell and Adam Warner, for helping to keep our server going and our old episodes online. And if you'd like to donate, then you can go to www.patreon.com forward slash retrospection. Two? Two Patreon supporters? Yeah, two. Wow, big time. We fit the big time. You know, you could have kept that quiet. We could have pretended we have loads. We've just specially chosen these two as to be mentioned. Yeah, but then all the other fact, fictitious ones would get really annoyed with us because we didn't mention their names. Oh, yeah, there's nothing worse than fictitious people getting annoyed with you. Oh, you trust me, you don't want it. You really don't want that. Right. They've been knocking on your door at all hours. But silently. Well, well yeah, but they, they could not. They could theoretically knock on your door at all hours because they're not real. They could so be they knocking could, right now. They could. But they're not real, so I can't hear them. No, they're just in your head. <laughs> oh, there's knocking. lots of things in my head, yeah. <laughs> in this episode we're taking a look at the wild geese from 1978 an andrew v mclaglan action film about a group of aged mercenaries paid to rescue an imprisoned african president from a corrupt african dictator it's the expendables with lots of british thespians isn't it yeah it is the original expendables it is it is yeah. Some could argue the better expendable. Some could. We'll see who by the end of this podcast. Will it be me? Will it be you? Will it be neither of us? Yeah, or both of us. Could be. Yeah. The film's outstanding cast consists of Richard Burton as Colonel Faulkner, Roger Marr as Lieutenant Sean Finn between Bond films, mm-hmm. Richard Harris as Captain Rafer Janders, Hardy Kruger as Lieutenant Peter Coetzee, Stuart Granger as Sir Edward Matheson, Frank Finlay as Father Georg Hagen, Kenneth Griffin as Arthur Whitty, Barry Foster as Thomas Balfour, and let's be honest, a host of other male character actors. I mean, it's a very male-dominated film. Well, there's, there's only three um, female characters in the whole movie, and I think they've got about ten lines between them, haven't they? Yeah, it's like an outdated gentleman's club of cinema. It is, and you know, yeah. you know, it was between all these actors anyway. Yeah. So it's also very much a product of its time, so I'd like to point out that any sexual, gender or race-related attitudes shown in this movie are not representative of my own. Paul's? Yes. Me? No. (laughs) You know, there are some out there that would probably believe that. I'm not saying who they are, but... (laughs) Close friends? Close friends? Not that close. (laughs) (laughs) Music is by Roy Budd. That's right, yeah. It's a great score as well, apart from the opening song. <laughs> we'll talk about that. Yeah. It's written by Reginald Rose and based on Daniel Kearney's novel, and it's a Ewan Lloyd production. Yeah, now Ewan Lloyd, he, um, he apparently didn't... He made, he made um, Richard Harris um, take half of his fee and put it into a special bank account that they could um, deduct from. Because he had such a bad reputation that anything that would hold up shooting, he was going to make him pay for it. Now, I have a different story. Oh, go on. 
Continuation. Uh, I have that the insurers for the film would only accept Harris if you and Lloyd put up his entire salary as a guarantee, and that Lloyd would sign a declaration at the end of every day's filming to say that Harris had not held up the day's filming in any way, and that Lloyd didn't tell Harris about this until the film had been completed. I would imagine that the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. Possibly, yeah. It's one of those, you know, apocryphal stories, isn't it? There's a few of those in this film as well. Yeah, because Harris, he had a reputation at this point because his previous film, Golden Rendezvous, was $1.5 million over budget. Uh, people blamed Harris's drinking and uh, script rewriting. Which is interesting because the original choice for his role was Burt Lancaster, wasn't it? Mm, but they turned against him because he wanted the role rewritten so that his role was bigger. Well, we all want that, don't we? We all want a bigger role. As many a days I wish that my role was bigger. I mean, your role couldn't be any bigger. <laughs> yeah. <sighs> Who told you that? Oh, the role master. <laughs> King Rollo. King Rollo. King, King Rollo. Oh, we should do that one. Oh, God, no. <laughs> You'll be asking me to do um, Baba the Elephant next or something like that. Oh, that sounds good. Oh. Moomins. Do Moomins. Oh, God, Moomins. Um, well, it's funny, though, because everyone had a reputation for being a big drinker and uh, a party animal, but then... During filming this, everybody was on the wagon. Apparently. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Roger Moore joked that he was the only wild one in the cast. <laughs> and when Roger Moore's your only wild one, you know, I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But did you, did you read the story about um, how one day he, was, he got so drunk that um, one of the crew members saw him standing outside where he was staying, just standing outside um, in his underpants with a hose over his head, trying to get sober? Wait. This, this because he was so hungover. This didn't happen in the film. This was you. <laughs> Where do you think I got it from? Oh, okay. I mean, it's good enough for Sir Rog. It's good enough for me. Oh, absolutely. Or is that the other way around? Maybe. If it's good enough for me, it was obviously good enough for Sir Rog. Yeah, I like that one better. Mm, yeah, that's not right. Yeah. No. Mm -hmm. no. So the film has a troubled reception and is often accused of racism. Mm -hmm. And I'm in two minds about that, but we'll talk about it as we go through the film. Yeah, I think it was very much a product of his time, as you said before. Yeah. yeah. And I, I, I don't think it was necessarily racist. I think, I think it, it had trouble in the fact that it was... I think it meant well. I think the characters in it who are racist, but then it's explored in a way to kind of question their morality. And there is a whole problem as well at the time because there was a lot of boycotting going on, wasn't there, of this film and the fact that they actually shot in South Africa at the time of apartheid. Yeah. Because Michael Caine was offered a role in it and he turned it down because of that. I'm pretty sure he'd done the Wilby conspiracy in Africa. Oh, maybe he'd, he'd uh, learned his lesson, you see. Maybe. Did he get any flack for that? Possibly. Maybe? Possibly, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Richard Burton was severely ill all the way through this, though, wasn't he? With uh, stomach issues? He had stomach issues, and apparently in, um, uh, shortly after the filming finished, he was admitted to hospital, and he was found to have um, his entire spine was coated in crystallised alcohol. Wow. Yeah. Have you, have you been checked? <laughs> I don't have a bad back. Oh, I think you should go now. We'll stop the podcast. You just make an appointment. 
But if it's crystallised... It's okay. Yeah, I'm just saving it up. It's fine. Oh, okay. I'm sure it'll be all right. Maybe I'll just stand near the gas fire. It'll melt. I've never even heard of that. Crystallised... Yeah, apparently you can... So I've heard. I've looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> just checked to make sure. <laughs> a big book of alcoholic facts. The well-thumbed book. <laughs> I'm glad you said well-thumbed. Do you have any other uh, production tidbits? I was quite surprised to read that Roger Moore turned 50 during this because they kind of treat him like he's the young guy in the, in the group, don't well, they? <laughs> I was going to say in fairness he is, but... Um, <laughs> There's something, it's one of those things you haven't realized in the 70s, people give their age, but they look like 20 years older than what they really are. This is true, and I think um, Burton in particular looked a lot older than what he actually was. He'd seen a lot. Yeah, he'd seen a lot. He'd been there, he'd done it all. Yeah. And drank it. You know. And most of it was stuck to his spine, apparently. So who says you can't take it with you? Maybe you can. (laughs) You can't have it stuck to your spine. (laughs) Yeah. Speak for yourself. All right. So, <laughs> shall we hear a trailer? Yes, please. I offer you the contract to deliver him to me alive. Where do I find him? He's to be moved across the border and taken to an army barracks at Zimbala. And you want me to intercept him and deliver him to you? Correct. Julius Limbani is alive. I don't care. Yes, you do. I'm finished with all of that. I'm getting too old. And by the way, so are you. I've got Ray for Jarvis. Good. You haven't got Sean Finn. Alan, what? Not even a hearty handshake. A car just pulled up to the back door. Sean. Sean Finn. How are you, Peter? Why would you be looking for me? With Tiger, age 42, sir. 12 years in the Black Watch, rank of sergeant. Blake, Jesse. The countdown has started for the wild geese. 50 steel-hard mercenaries. They train like dogs. They fly like birds. They fight like jackals. So that was a good trailer. Enjoyed that. Very much told you everything you needed to know. You're making my catchphrases, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. I tried to work in the Benedictine, uh, I bet he did, thing at the cinema again the other day, but I couldn't find an opening. What kind of cinema was that? You were looking for an opening. <laughs> you know those cobbled... No, no, no get no. it. <laughs> so, we open with a map of the African continent with news footage superimposed over it and still shots of African children and possibly leaders. Plus, we get Jonah Betraden singing the theme song Flight of the Wild Geese. Oh, this song. You don't like it? Oh, my God. It makes my ears bleed. It's like it's like someone, they sat down and said, we need a song mm-hmm. and an opening title sequence. We want it Bond. We want it, like, bo- very Bond-esque. Mm-hmm. But in all fairness to... And there's been some stinky Bond themes in, in the past, haven't there? Ooh, like what? Like the garbage one. Yeah, which one? <laughs> oh, very good. <laughs> <laughs> The one by Garbage, The World Is Not Enough. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the That's one not by right. Ma- uh, the one by Madonna. The, the Madonna one, yeah. I mean, they're pretty bad, but boy, <laughs> they've got nothing on this. Not a big fan, though. No. Yeah, yeah, no. yeah. It's pretty harsh. Um, talking to Bond, though, the title sequence is by Morris Binder, who is known for the titles for the pre-Daniel Craig Bond films. Mm-hmm. And the second unit director on this film is John Glenn, isn't it? Ah, so we have Bond connections everywhere. 
Yeah, just a shame they didn't uh, stretch into uh, making this title sequence and this song better. Who would you have had? Shirley Bassey? Shirley Bassey would have been perfect. Okay. Just a, and a different, it would have to be a different song though, because this song's awful. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is. The lyrics are terrible. The flight of the wild geese. <laughs> like, what? <laughs> There's no actual geese in the film. It's, what, meta- it's metaphorical. It's bullshit, that's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe it should just have been a drunken chorus of Richard Harris and Richard Burton singing it. That would have been better. Mm. I could have lived with that. Yeah? Yeah. All right. So we cut to Concord Landing. Now, nothing says British more than Concord in a 70s film, right? That's right. I actually made the note that said, best of British. Yeah, they are, they're always international travel, 70s British film, Concord. It's a pity they didn't work very well, though, isn't it? They worked pretty well. Well, they scrapped them, didn't they, in the end? Because Yeah, they crashed after, but they've been flying for 30-odd <laughs> <30 odd> years. <laughs> oh, it's all right, then. <laughs> I mean, think about it. How many planes crashed? There's only, what, four Concords. You'd lose two of them. That's half of them gone already. I suppose that's that. There, there is that. Yeah, I'll give you that one. You ever been on Concord? No, I wish I had though. It's tiny. Have you been on one? I've been in it. It wasn't in the air though. Why? Why was this? Tell the story. Come on. Why was it not in the air? Because it wasn't oh, flying. What? No. Yeah, I gathered that bit. Well, I mean, why were you on a Concord? They've got one here in New York on uh, USS Intrepid. <laughs> really? Yeah, one of the Concords is here, so you can go in it and walk around. Well, walk around. It's it's so tiny. You just like crammed into it you walk up the main fuselage and then you get off how ironic that you um you 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 live in england for such a long time you move to america and you get on a concord on a ship yeah yeah it's got nothing to do with what we're supposed to be talking about no no (laughs) it doesn't bode well does it (laughs) (laughs) so back in the film Colonel Faulkner is sitting waiting at the airport and a man approaches and Faulkner is annoyed that he's late and though I kind of find it weird that Richard Burton is supposed to be uh, on the wagon during this film, but he permanently looks drunk. He he does. I was thinking because he's sat in this um, in in this airport and he's just drinking this whiskey out of a paper bag, isn't he? Yeah. With a cup. Yeah. And, and I was just thinking, did you just film him on his day off? <laughs> yeah, right. Did you just follow him around? <laughs> it's perfect. Yeah, there's a lot of drinking in this film. There is. I mean, I assume it must have been just coloured water or. Uh... If they really well, were on the wagon. Well, we can assume. We can. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah. So the man says they had to have Faulkner avoid immigration, and it took some time arranging. Faulkner's not impressed. He's cold, and he's tired. Mm-hmm. He's playing slightly drunk as well, isn't he, I think? Yeah, I think so. Even though, as we say, he is yeah, yeah. slightly drunk. It's hard to tell. Mm-hmm. He's such a great actor. Absolutely. Yeah. They take a car in silence to an official-looking building in London, and Thomas Balfour greets him and takes him through to Matheson. Matheson has persuaded Falcon to come to London by sending an unsigned cheque for £2,000 and free first-class travel. And he makes sure he gets that petty cash slip signed straight away, doesn't he? Yeah, it's the first thing he asks for, right? It's straight out of his pocket. Yeah. Well, you would, wouldn't you? You would, yeah. yeah. And Balfour fetches Faulkner a whiskey, which Burton drinks in one gulp and holds the glass with both hands like he's chugging a bucket. <laughs> Did you notice that weird way he drinks it? 
I think it's supposed to show that he's he, he is an alcoholic, isn't he? Yeah, because he immediately asks for another, and then he says, I'm dry when I work, because he sees everyone looking at him. Yeah, because the Stuart, Stuart Granger character does say, oh, um, feel free to, to um, take liberties with my whiskey. Mm-hmm. And uh, Faulkner replies, yes, I will. Yeah, he's no shame. Yeah. Right. Well, it's the way you've got to be, isn't it? It's like you when you used to come over to my place. I remember going under your sink looking for looking for booze. Yeah, you're right straight <laughs> to the fridge and your head's in the fridge and you're taking it all out. Well, you said make yourself at home. Yeah, I didn't actually, you know, mean taking your pants off and drinking from a bucket. Wait, what? what? I don't remember this. <laughs> <laughs> what were you doing when I was drunk? <laughs> looking the other way. I hope so. <laughs> So Matheson asked Faulkner what happened on the previous contract with Julius Limburney, which was a mm-hmm. disastrous failure. Faulkner says it wasn't my failure. The man he was supposed to collect never arrived. And then we cut to an airplane in which a man is skewered through an airline seat. Yeah, I don't get this, though. I mean, they, they stab him to keep it to do it quietly, obviously, don't they? <laughs> but everyone's then they make a big scene of getting him off the plane, don't they? Yeah, and everyone's <laughs> screaming. And like, how did they get off the airplane? And not get arrested. Because yeah. this is what? They're in London, aren't they? I don't think it's London, actually, because the, this is, you know, before he's brought somewhere. So I think it's somewhere foreign, but still. Yeah, I mean, sure, this country have, like, police and actual laws. Who knows with these foreigners? Oh! <laughs> <laughs> aren't, you, uh, aren't you possibly Shit. applying for your American no, citizenship no, soon? change my mind. <laughs> <laughs> wow all right hope you all know what you're getting folks uh-huh. <laughs> the best of british concord <laughs> long used, and thin used to be my nickname really fast it <laughs> goes like the clappers yeah <laughs> so yeah because and then another man sits down in the vacant seat next to Lynn why didn't they just ask the guy to move rather than skewing oh I guess he was a bodyguard or a security guard or yeah, something yeah, that yeah let's good. go with that he wasn't just a complete stranger now we're in a monologuing he's <laughs> yeah. like oh yes I got a ticket to first class <laughs> yeah this guy just had an upgrade yeah Woo. <laughs> next minute someone's sticking her huge steel thing up his ass wow you had trouble thinking of that one didn't you <laughs> I was t- I was self-editing God. it's always fun to watch <laughs> I forget sometimes that we're actually recording <laughs> yeah skewering somebody for an airline seat that's rather a harsh way to get a seat isn't it on an airplane it's dog eat dog up there though isn't it I bet you're like that when going to see a Marvel film in the cinema oh I booked way in advance don't you worry about that Skewer, you book that in advance. <laughs> Skewer, seat, everything. So the man sitting down tells Lynn Burney that the plane has been diverted and that an old friend is waiting to see him. Mm-hmm. Now back in the present, Faulkner wants to know why he was asked and paid to see Matheson. Matheson says, oh, it's all about copper, which seems to mean something to Faulkner because he starts to put the pieces together. He does. Uganda agreed to hold President Lumberney, but then refused to hand him back. Then they announced that he had died of a heart attack because Limburney has a heart condition. But secretly, Limburney isn't dead and Uganda will hand him over to General Ndofa, 
who has taken over the country. If Britain can get to Lumberney first and put him back in power, then they will receive concessions on the copper trade. So Matheson wants Falconer to intercept Lumberney before he gets to the dictator and bring him to London. Thanks. That's, that's the whole plot there. It is. I did like uh, Falkner's reaction when when um, they told him what happened to Lumbani and, and how they were um, holding him. He replies to them, the dogs. Well, maybe his, his pet poodle just come in the room. <laughs> maybe he left him somewhere. They're still on the plane. Yeah, he just remembered he'd left them in the yeah. car. The dogs. The dogs. <laughs> <laughs> He's running out the door. Shit! Calling for his butler. (laughs) He makes you get that Patty Cass slip back, though. You need it back. Yeah. Yeah. Faulkner will see if the plan is feasible before agreeing. He wants Balfour to get a map of Zimbala, Mm -hmm. which is the African country Limburney is being held in, a model of the barracks, and an indication of the garrison strength. And he wants Finn and Rafa Jandus to join his team. Non-negotiable as well, he says, doesn't he? Yep, if Balfour can't get these two men, then there's no job. There's no job? No, no jobby. Can't live without a jobby, can you? I can. (laughs) (laughs) Really? That's what I've heard. (laughs) So, we cut to Sean Finn entering a private nightclub that looks like somebody's house. (laughs) I think it is. I think it's just a house. Just a house. This is the thing in the 70s, right? You turned your house into a disco. Everyone was doing it. Yeah? yeah, your parents? Oh yeah, it was it was a, it was a banging happening place. Banging happening place. Yeah, oh. I don't I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, did I go to discos? Do you, I went to the school disco a few times. That was about it. You went to uh, Maxine's Rock Night. Yeah, but that's not a disco, is it? Yeah, I think that's actually it's the definition. Not. It's a bunch of, it. of sweaty men just standing around the dance floor looking at women. Oh, I think that's the Blue Danube in the police academy, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait, no, not the women bit. <laughs> not the women bit, no. no. Okay. I did like uh, Roger Moore's attire in this scene. I, I, it's basically James Bond in a flat cap and a flasher mac, isn't it? Yeah, you think he looked good? Oh, yeah. Well, he's Roger. He always looks good. Is that a style you're going to go for? It is. I mean, the guy can rock a safari suit like nobody's business. If you want to go for that style, you've just got to buy the flat cap because the flasher Mac you've already got. (laughs) You've been looking in my wardrobe again. There's pictures of it in the internet. Oh, I hope not. (laughs) (laughs) Don't look in the drawers. (laughs) Whose? Yeah, very good. So Finn is led into a room. And then a man stumbles in, dressed in a bathrobe, and this is Sonny Martinelli, a drug dealer with the London Mafia. Played by Alan Ladd's son, apparently. Yeah, didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Well, you do know. Yeah, thanks. I just told you. Yeah, great. Yeah. I, feel, right. I feel informed. Full of information. <laughs> Bursting. Bursting at the seams. Too much knowledge. Oh, oh don't, please. Finn is annoyed with him. He did a job for him, and had told Martinelli, no drugs when he agreed to do a job, but then find out the package had been heroin. Mm-hmm. I was just going to say, this mafia guy, he's perfectly safe. I mean, how could he not be hiring an 80-year-old man as his muscle? Why, was he 80? Well, he looks it, doesn't he? Well, everyone's old in this film. <laughs> you... That's my point. Why? <laughs> There's you... a scene later on when some other mafia guys turn up, and they're in their 60s as well, aren't they? Yeah. But, you know, this is the thing. You don't see that these days. Everyone has to be, like, 20-year-old now. 
and clone like as well. Well, yeah, an old, an old call Chris for some reason. Old <laughs> call Chris. Yeah, why well, is you know, that? <laughs> There's a lot of them around. It appears to be. I always thought it was just one guy just grew his hair long sometimes. Turns out he has it long, he has it short, he has, yeah. a, he has a beard, he has a moustache. Yeah, that's it. Just all Chris's. Ooh, it's an interesting theory. I might look into that. Have you seen them all in one place? You know, funnily enough, you haven't, have you? They never uh, stood in a movie together, have they? Nope. Nope. Oh, ooh, I think you're onto something there. I think I am too. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Martinelli's not sympathetic. What did you think it was? I mean, Finn thought it was cash. So Martinelli orders his heavy, called Randy. Unfortunate name. Yeah. At that age, it's just a name. Yeah. It's like, it used to be called Randy, now I'm called Viagra. <laughs> now I'm called up at three o'clock in the morning, having my tenth piss. <laughs> yeah, hey, enough for your private life. Let's get on with the film. I'm not quite there yet. Eight or nine? It's just one long one. It just takes like 25 minutes. Okay. More information than anybody <laughs> needed. <laughs> well, that stopped you dead in your tracks, didn't it? <laughs> yeah. So Randy, he tells Randy to break any two bones of Finn, but Finn is faster. He gets the drop on Randy and pulls out a gun. He opens a packet of heroin, and Finn tells him about his contact for the job. A young girl, laying on a bed, dying. He realises that they were pushing bad stuff. And he makes Randy and Martinelli eat the heroin. Randy's not having it though, is he? No, he reaches for a gun and Finn shoots him dead centre in the head. Right in the zit in the middle of his head that he had as well. Did you notice that? Oh, I didn't. Wow. Yeah. He H- had a zit and he aimed right for it and he got it. HD's amazing. It is, I know. <laughs> yeah. And he makes Martinelli eat all of the heroin and then he leaves. It's quite brutal, isn't it, I think? Uh, it's quite yeah, nasty there, what he does to him. There is a few nasty scenes in this film. And I, you know, a lot of people disagree that, that, that Roger Moore was better when he didn't play the tough guy. You know, there's that scene, isn't there, in um, Live and Let Die, where, where he's um, questioning the one of the ladies, and he's quite brutal with it, and people complain. and say, oh, that, that was okay for Sean, but it doesn't work for Roger. But I don't know. I think he pulls it off quite well. He's got kind of a coldness to him sometimes, Roger Moore, which I think works really well. Maybe it's the type of brutality that here it's because he's making somebody do something. He's not threatening the person physically himself. Mm. He's watching someone kill themselves in a sense, but he's not caring about it. So maybe that's why. Yeah, yeah. He has quite a good Bond-esque line as he leaves as well, doesn't he? As the guy's writhing on the floor after eating all these drugs, he says to him, a little suffering is good for the soul. That's right. Nice. <laughs> There's a lot of good lines in this film. There are, and a lot of them are Roger Moore's. Yeah. But I don't know, Richard Burton has quite a few good ones as well. Yeah. <laughs> He's quite funny in a very dry way, Richard yeah. Burton, in this movie. He is. So we cut to Rafer Jander with his son, Emil. Mm-hmm. And Rafer tells him that on Emil's school holidays, he's going to take his son on holiday. He might not. <laughs> he might not. I mean, not a spoiler or anything, but he might not. For Christmas, because remarkably, this is a Christmas film. We could have saved it for Christmas. We could have done that. Yeah. We'll do it again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, we'll just change the number of the episode. Yeah, yeah. Rerun? No. Yeah. <laughs> Faulkner rings a bell and Rafer brings him in. Rafer is pleased to see him. It's been 10 years. They have a drink. Faulkner makes a toast to the next 10 weeks. Hmm. Rafer wonders why, but when he finds out, he tells Faulkner he isn't interested in a job. He has a meal to look after, and he's too old to be playing soldier. I'm not being funny, but this kid of his, he's annoying, isn't he? No, I, I, mean, like, I like him. 
Oh, shut up. I don't know. I have no problem with this kid whatsoever. Oh, you know, this kid would have got beaten up at school. Yeah, but so would we, so... <laughs> <laughs> so that doesn't make it better. I'm a 44-year-old man now. I'm allowed to say these things. <laughs> no, I, I, I have no problem. I think the kid's a good actor and plays the role quite well. Even when he slaps his hands together and goes, Oh, Daddy, that's fantastic. Yeah, I, it makes my heart twinge. Have you found it? <laughs> this is news. <laughs> wow. Yeah, it was in a box. <laughs> Marked, never open. <laughs> <laughs> Under the bed, caked in dust. Yeah, that's the one. Oh, I'm glad you found it then. Yeah. I thought there was something different about you. I thought it was the shirt. No, it's the happy-go-luckiness. Faulkner reveals that his wife died and that he doesn't see much of his kids. Mm-hmm. And then Faulkner starts to tell him that Lynn Burney is alive. Rafer doesn't want to know, although he was involved in the early operation with Lynn Burney. Rafer says he's finished, but Faulkner tries to play on Rafer's idolism. Mm-hmm. And he's what? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, his I, idolism. His idolism. <laughs> he's oh. like, ooh, he's an idol. Um, but Faulkner... I just thought you meant that he doesn't like moving very much. No, he doesn't. He's bored idol, he is. He is. But Faulkner tries to play on Rafer's idealism. That's the one. Yeah. Rafer says he doesn't know who the good guys are anymore. Mm-hmm. Faulkner says, you know Lynn Burney's the real thing. If Endolfi gets him, then he dies. If Faulkner gets him out, then Lynn Burney could do great things for his country. Rafer still says no. So Faulkner seems to give up and ask for... Just one favour. Can Rafer, you know, look at this map and tell him how he'd get in to grab Burney and get out again? But he knows this will pull Rafer in. Yeah, he knows as soon as he's got that map on that table, he's got him, hasn't yeah, he? Yeah, absolutely. Quite a devious man. Yeah. i got to say, though, it's very brave of the people that made this film to put the two of these in a room together, isn't it? <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> well, you know it'd, it'd probably result in piss, vomit and random sonnets. I love that album. <laughs> was that one of Richard Harris's? I think it was, right? <laughs> it's on Spotify. I'll find it. Yeah, you should put it on a playlist. <laughs> what was it called what again? <laughs> Piss, Vomit and Ram Sonnet Recitals. Love it. Yeah. So, um, Burton's a legend, but what about Harris? What do you think about Richard Harris? I love Richard Harris. He has a really good natural way about him, doesn't he? I'm trying to think if I've ever seen a Richard Harris film that I didn't like. Yeah, even the films that are bad, he's watchable in. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. There's a great line as well where um, Faulkner says to uh, Rafer, I always admired your idealism, and he replies, bollocks. <laughs> that tickled me, that did. It's very British. Uh, yeah, it is very British. Later at dinner, he tells Balfour that he has Rafer, but Balfour says he doesn't have Finn. He's either dead by now, or will be if he appears in London, because there's a big contract on him for killing Martinelli. Mm-hmm. Faulkner tells Balfour to get the contract lifted and he will get to Finn. He takes a taxi with Rafer to try and locate Finn and they, they see that all of Finn's known haunts are being watched mm-hmm. and they end up going to a casino and start making a scene. I don't quite know why they're making a scene though. Harris is playing like a Texan with right. a really bad American accent. Yeah. And Burton's playing drunk again. Yeah. Why didn't they just make less of a nuisance and just go to the person that they're trying to find maybe they were both pissed that day and this is what came out and they just <laughs> okay so they're looking... yeah i don't know it's it just seems strange it, you would think that you would want to make less 
of a nuisance mm. of yourself. Mm-hmm. But anyway, this, but... This, this casino as well, it looks like it's in someone's room again, doesn't it? Someone's it's, front room. It's probably the same house that Disco was in. Yeah, I think it actually is. Yeah. Everything was in houses in the 70s in England. But did you notice the lovely uh, Valerie Leon? Is she the one that plays Heather? No, she's just the, the random casino woman. Oh, and who I think is... they stop and ask for directions and she points oh. them towards the, the woman that they need to go and speak to. Oh. Valerie Leon. Yeah. Who is she? Leader of, leader of the Lovey Doveys. Oh, okay. For a uh, carry-on fans out there. Okay, good. I've been giving more information for people who are listening. Mm-hmm. You know, don't, don't keep them guessing. You come this far with us. Don't look you. at me <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> so they're looking for Heather who's a croupier, mm-hmm. who knows Finn, and they find her, and they start to tell her they're looking for him, and they convince her that they're friends, and she tells him that he's in a room upstairs. Faulkner goes up to get him, and Finn's pleased to see him. Do you think Roger Moore had his cigars written into his role? So he could just keep smoking them? I think so. He liked a cigar, didn't he? Who doesn't? <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm not a big fan, I have to say. No, leave her back. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> So that answered that question. Let's move you don't on. Like a bit, you don't like a big fat one between your teeth, then, do you? Not? Oh, Paul, that's just reaching. <laughs> you should be ashamed of yourself. I kind of am, but you know, I still have to say it. Yeah. So, uh, Rafer knocks on the door and enters and tells him a car just pulled up outside. Someone is watching the place, and Rafer reveals he's carrying a gun and a grenade for balance. <laughs> a grenade. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> What's he got in his back pocket? Mustard gas. Well, no, that wouldn't be balanced then. He'd fall over unless he had something big and heavy in his front pocket. What could he put in his front pocket then? What could he have? Truncheon. Truncheon. I've already made one joke. I'm not doing another one. Okay. Across town, Balfour and Matheson are meeting the head of the London Mafia to get to the contract lifted. Interestingly, Matheson and this mafia guy they both have the same cars the same looking butler the criminals and the money people are on the same sides of the coin yeah that might bode ill for our heroes later mm, it might. did you did you did you get the uh, star trek connection here as well matheson beams in <laughs> that would be good wouldn't it no the uh, the guy playing the um the mafia head he's in the episode for the world is hollow and i've touched the sky wow you really got your nerd hat on today. Well, one of us has to. One of us has to keep it flying. Well, we, we just send it to each other via mail. <laughs> You've got it this week. That's true, yeah. Wait until we do um, another uh, Jerry Anderson thing. You can have it back then. Okay. Matheson says he controls a number of newspapers, and if Finn is killed, Matheson will make sure the mob is the most photographed and reported about family in England. Mm-hmm. So they get the contract lifted. Meanwhile, back at Finn's hiding place, a group of men have kicked in the door of the wrong room. Rafer, always subtle, throws his grenade into the hallway and takes out two of them. <laughs> Good line. Yeah. As a, as a gunfight is about to happen, there's a shout that the contract has been called off and the men scarper. Well, you say scarper, these mafia guys have got a collected age of about 700, haven't they? So they're not moving that fast. <laughs> well, really? Very, very ageist, Paul. Considering we'll see, we'll, we'll, yeah, well, you wait till later. Faulkner, Rafer, and Finn make their way down to the casino. They find Heather, and she's been beaten up. But she told the men the wrong room. 
Finn with some encouraging kisses her. Well, they have to leave quick. And then she oddly proclaims, Ooh, isn't he a love? Yeah, that's a bit strange, isn't it? She's just been beaten up for him, and he wasn't going to even kiss her or say anything. He was just going to leave. But he's Roger, isn't it? You know. Yeah, but it just... It's just odd that... She wants some of that sweet, sweet Roger in. I don't know. It just didn't seem right. Now, did you get the uh, Who Does Wins connection as well? Uh, Nope. Go on. This girl is Mm -hmm. played by the same lady that played uh, Lewis Collins' wife in Who Does Wins. Yes, of course. Mm-hmm. Both you and Lloyd Productions. Funny that, isn't it? He likes people and he sticks with them. He does, he does. But no, Richard Burton's character here, he's a bit creepy as well, isn't he? I mean, he keeps calling her a good girl. Well, all women in this film are referred to as girls and love and mm. she's a good woman and things like that. Mm. Yeah. yeah. By, very, by old men. <laughs> By <laughs> old man who should know better. Yeah. Operation U Tree, anyone? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good job most of these people are dead. <laughs> oh, yeah. Glad you, you said that. that. You better all, cut that out, yeah. All lawyers address the concerns to Paul Wood. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I wasn't very, I, you know, I kept it vague. I didn't mention any names, you know. No, you just said all the people in this film. Yeah, but I'm not implying they're all, you know. Um, you're not implying all by your use of the word all. Just move on. Nobody will notice. Okay. Next day, they're all meeting at Faulkner's place. Balfour has brought a stranger, a military advisor from a government department, and he has the final say on whether the plan will go ahead. Mm Mm-hmm. Rafer goes through the training and the operation, and this man approves the plan, but the operation has been moved forward by three weeks. This means Rafer can't take a meal on holiday. Faulkner hands over a contract with terms and stipulations that Balfour finds outrageous, but he signs anyway. Finn shows Balfour out, leaving Rafer and Faulkner alone. Faulkner says he didn't know the timing of the plan would be changed, and they'll be over holidays. Rafer doesn't listen. He just gets on with the preparations. I did like the line when he, when he signed the contract and gave it back to him. He said, now here's your contract, now you can go outside and scream in the corridor. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good line. Yep. Although I have to say, I was I was particularly distracted by the size of Richard Harris's glasses in this scene. Indeed. They took up most of his face. Yeah, they are rather big, but those are in fashion yeah. again. Not that big, surely. Massive. All right. Faulkner visits the house of his old sergeant major, Sandy Young. Sandy's pleased to see him and invites him in. He's great, this guy. Yeah. But Faulkner says no because he understands that Fa- uh, Sandy's wife won't appreciate his visit. Faulkner offers him a job getting the men into shape for the operation. Sandy is eager, even though he worries about being too old. And his wife comes out, and she's pretty unhappy to see Faulkner. You're not welcome, Mm -hmm. she says to him, and goes back inside. Faulkner says, there'll be some crying now. And Sandy says, yes, a good deal of it, but she'll get over it. She's a good woman. Is that after he goes back indoors and smacks her in the mouth? (laughs) You said that, not me. (laughs) No, I'm getting into the character, the spirit of the '70s characters. Yeah, you know, yeah, I'm not yeah. saying it's, I'm not condoning it by any means. Okay, it's a joke, folks. Yep, that's what they always say. <laughs> Finn enters the pub and meets Peter Coates. You've, you've, you've met my wife. Who's hitting who? Yeah, you're pummeled to into your life, mate. Yeah. <laughs> 
Finn enters the pub and meets Peter Cote, a South African mercenary. Peter's clearly short on money and wants to know why Finn wants him. Finn offers him a job. Peter just wants to go back to South Africa and Finn tells him the job is in Africa and pays £30,000. So, he's on board. Now, I like this actor, but I prefer, I think he's he's works much better in those eighties movies where he you know he was the um the guy that appeared in people's dreams and he was slashing people and stabbing them. I Is think that, he was better in those. That's something he made a role out of. Yeah, yeah, you know, um, Nightmare on Elm Street. He was better in those movies. Hey, Freddy Krueger. Why are you calling him Freddy Krueger? Because his name's Hardy Krueger. Oh, the actor. Yeah. Wow. Jesus Christ! Way to kill a joke, Colin. <laughs> Yeah, but the problem is, Paul, to start the joke, you have to remind people what the guy's name is. Oh, they knew. No, no one knows. We mentioned it once, like, an hour ago. Oh, yeah, but if you're listening to a podcast... So you should have said, oh, Coatsy played by Hardy Kruger. You know, I prefer him, and then do the joke so people get the bloody name. I got it. You want me to do it again? You know, James is right. (laughs) (laughs) Where is he? Wake him up. Has he, seen, has he seen this film? <laughs> <laughs> he probably has, right? Not. No, he hasn't. Go get him. I need, I need to work with a professional. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. Just move on. At Faulkner's place, he's holding interviews with the rest of the men. None of the men seem to be happy in their post-military life, and their wives mm-hmm. won't be happy knowing they wanted to go on this operation. And, okay, most of the men are old. Although, mm. when Jock tells Faulkner his real age, he says he's 47. Now, <laughs> he looks like he's 59 at best. What is it it's about, the, se- yeah, what is it about the 70s where everyone looks like... You got a girl who's like, you know, 15, and she looks like she's 45. <laughs> <laughs> Your Honor. <laughs> no, what is it about the 70s? But everyone looks like 20, 30 years older than they really are. Well, I suppose at the time, everyone was drinking, everyone was smoking, everyone was eating food they shouldn't be eating all the time. You know, it takes its toll on the human body, I suppose. Does it? Yeah, oh, it does. <laughs> <laughs> I was asking. I mean, you, you wouldn't think that I was just 25, would you? Hey, yeah. No, I wouldn't. Definitely. No. In no way whatsoever. <laughs> you just wait. I'll turn over an early. Mm-hmm. So um, they're interviewing the different people for the mission, and Arthur Whitty comes in, and he's a medical officer, and he says, oh, do I have time to get a divorce? 36 hours. Lovely, sir. I can't wait to see his face. Yeah, shall we discuss this this uh, character? He's pretty camp. He's pretty camp, yeah. he's uh... And they all have a good laugh and a joke with him, don't they? Yes, they do, about him, the fact that he's camp. Yeah. But no one's bothered by the fact that he's camp. No, because, I mean, he, basically, we find out later, he's a cold-blooded killer, isn't he? So, I mean... <laughs> yeah, there is that. You know, uh, isn't there a penis joke as well? There are... Well, we'll get to some jokes later. So what about charging by the inch? Oh, I don't remember that one. I think you just made yeah. that up. <laughs> no, because it's funny. <laughs> did, did you get your two pence worth? <laughs> Rafer visits his son on the school field and he has a number of presents with him and he tells Emil that he won't be able to be with him over Christmas and his son isn't happy. He doesn't want the presents. And you're probably going to scar on this but I think these scenes are really well done for this kind of film. 
they're, they're pretty oh, this moving. Seems, this scene's good, yeah. And I really mm-hmm. feel bad for Rafer and Neil. Especially later. Yeah, but in this scene, it's pretty. It's it's a touching scene, I think. I'm not being. Yeah, you talk about touching. I mean, he's being sent off to spend Christmas with his headmaster. Yeah, can, can you imagine? He's going to get touched. <laughs> going to be some touching there. I mean, you're asking for trouble, aren't you? You sound like a creepy old man when you keep going with that. Oh, he's, he's going to get some touching. Sure, some touching. He's just asking for it. <laughs> it's called it's called characterization. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. That's what it is. It's called realism. <laughs> well, you've got to bring realism into your characters. Uh-huh. Or your characters yeah. into realism. Yeah. No. At what? At a? Yeah. <laughs> so we cut to a training ground. Sandy, a sergeant major, gives them the usual pep talk that these characters do. Let's try for our first heart attack, shall we? <laughs> and this running counterclockwise, then clockwise, and jumping onto the ground, then getting back up. I mean, it would kill me. <laughs> I'd be dead in the first 30 seconds. I know, it's dirty, it's <laughs> dusty, and probably a little bit warm. There's, there's some very weird lines in this as well. At one point, he's screaming. Um, he calls the, the gay guy screaming faggot, doesn't he? Well, he actually says, yeah, to the doctor, you great screaming faggot, get up before I soap your asshole. <laughs> and then at one point, he says to he says to another character who's laying on the floor, get on your feet, you fucking abortion. Yeah, that's true. Now, this, the first time I saw this film properly, I was quite shocked at all the bad language that's in this film because I think I'd only ever seen it on TV. That's right. You just left the monastery and you were pure and you just didn't <laughs> have heard a bad word in your no, whole seriously. life. I mean, this film was always the kind of film that was shown on a Sunday afternoon on ITV. Probably heavily cut, but I didn't know at the time. I'd be curious to see the edited version. I think they just cut out all the bad language and all the spurting blood that happens later. Is the film 30 minutes long? <laughs> I don't think it would make it that short, would it? If you cut all that out, it's a bloody long film. It is, yeah. No, mm. tell me about it. <laughs> so after they're all collapsed in the hut with a few beers, Faulkner goes over the plan. The mm-hmm. sentries at the barracks will be a problem. No cover for a hundred yards, and they have to be quiet and take those out. Peter suggests crossbow with cyanide capsuled arrows, and they agree on this idea. Then Peter asks to leave. He reveals, well, he's kind of a racist, right? Because he's a white South African. Yeah. But he says, well, he doesn't like black people. He doesn't like killing them either, unless they're terrorists. That's okay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Rafer points out that the job is to get Limberni out. Mm-hmm. Peter says he just doesn't like killing people he has nothing against, but he'll do it because it will get him his farm and his ticket home, and he'll be killing for him, and he'll deal with his conscience later. And then he says to them, you lot are killing to impose your own personal ideas on the future of mankind on others, whether they're right or wrong. I wonder how we stack up against each other morally. It's an interesting point. It is. Yeah. And he leaves Mm -hmm. and Faulkner says they'll have to watch him because if he's not with us, he's dead. Do you know what I took out of this thing? What? The fact that if you get beer after doing all this working out, that's the kind of army I want to join. Really? That's what you took from that scene? That's the, scene, a, yeah. the scene that examines the moral attitude of killing and mm-hmm. you took out that it's worth it if it's a beer. You get a beer at the end of it. So where do I sign? All right. Okay. Yeah. Well, at least I know what to bribe you with. What, if you want me to kill anyone? <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll just run around a yard for a bit. Yeah, let's start low down the scale. We'll build up. Uh, well, we're going to start right at the at the low end of the scale, and just you know, I'm sitting in a chair. Yeah. I mean, I've got to build up to moving, obviously. Move a finger you know. or two. <laughs> if you like. We're <laughs> <laughs> all steady. Okay. <laughs> Uh, so we get some more training montages now, don't we? We do. Next day, it's parachute training. Dropping from a great mm-hmm. height without a chute. Finn does a terrible landing, and Sandy says that was ludicrous. You're jumping from an airplane, not a whorehouse window. Mm-hmm. An urgent message arrives of Faulkner. Oh, they have to go in tomorrow night, Christmas Day. General Endolfi has decided to execute Lynn Burney earlier than planned, and Endolfi also isn't taking a small contingent of men, but now he's taking his elite troops after telling the officers this Faulkner dismisses them but calls Sandy back he thanks Sandy tells him he's earned his money and you can tells him that he's not coming along on the operation because he wants Sandy to take his money and go back to his wife mm-hmm. but Sandy says you can stick the money up your ass he's coming along he trained the troops and he'll see them through the job mm-hmm. and the men are given leave before the operation begins so they all let out in a party and then there's an interesting scene of Sandy sitting alone eating his food because of what they're going to be getting up to and that he's happily married yeah i agree you know he'd want to go then would you want to go well not with them no i'm saying now if the imagine the smell in the back of that lorry i'm saying now if the option was open to you would you go (laughs) so um so they do some more training don't they uh, as fogner and rafer walk along um Mm -hmm. it's quiet because the men have left Rafer says if he is killed, he wants Faulkner to make sure his son is okay. Faulkner says, when I'm not killing people, I'm an out-and-out drunk. And he's not lying. No, and it's a dumb idea, but Rafer says maybe you need this responsibility. Faulkner doesn't answer, and it's left open if he would or not. He's desperate not to have the responsibility, though, isn't he? So it's night, and the soldiers are bored in the aircraft, ready to be deployed. They reach the drop Mm -hmm. zone, and they leap out, and they land... Finn says, oh, my heels are where my balls used to be. It's <laughs> a good line. It is. Did you notice, though, that um, we had that scene earlier in one of the montages where they were being taught how to uh, land properly by jumping off this huge tower. Mm-hmm. And they were supposed to land with their feet together and then roll to the side. Right. Not a single one of these people landing in these parachutes does that. Oh, Really? They all just sort of fall in a heap. One guy even just lands on his feet and just wanders off. So, really, Sergeant Major Sandy Young didn't really do a good job. I think he was just taking the piss. Hmm. Maybe that's why he wanted to go along, because he knew it all go tits up. So he could laugh at them? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I can see that. So it just all go wrong. Mm-hmm. It's a good aerial sequence, though, of them all jumping out of the plane, isn't it? Yeah, and it's got a rousing uh, Roy Budd... Match. You were you, you were aroused by it. Is that what you're saying? <laughs> I said <laughs> Wow <laughs> The sight of men in with helmets jumping out of the back of a plane gets you aroused, Colin. It takes all saying? sorts. He does, apparently. Yeah. Yeah. So the soldiers yeah. all split into two units. Finn will take over the airport while Faulkner's group will get Limberney out. Faulkner's mm-hmm. unit make their way through the brush and they're startled by birds and other animals. But by morning they've reached the camp. Faulkner observes the sentries through binoculars. Beata loads his crossbow. He shoots, takes out all three. The last one, close call. Mm-hmm. They cut through the wire. Dogs bark, but it goes quiet and they continue. They make their way through the compound. A guard notices the sentries down. 
But before he cries out, Jesse, one of Faulkner's men, kills him. What do you think of this, this plan? Um, it's not very honourable, is it? Well, no, it gets really gruesome at one point. Yeah, well, because they, they go into the barracks and just gas people in their sleep, don't they? Yeah, they put cyanide in and release it, killing everybody. Hmm. Not very sporting, is it? Oh, what would you prefer? They woke everybody up and went, Hello, guys. Uh, <laughs> let's let you know we're here to rescue them, Bernie, but we uh, wouldn't want you to do it in your sleep, so feel free to grab your guns and then we can go tally at each other. Is that what you'd prefer? That's what Biggles would do. It's what Biggles would do, but this ain't Biggles. These are mercenaries. I suppose. I suppose. Yeah, they are. Mm. Just so, seems a bit off to me, I think. Yeah, you don't like it? It's not cricket, is it? Not, no. No. You big pussy. <laughs> Faulkner and others burst into the jail and put the men in there under guard. They find the prison keys. A Cuban officer reaches for his gun and shots are fired. The guards mm-hmm. are killed. But they manage to find Limberni. Arthur gives Limberni some pills for his weak heart. Mm-hmm. Peter's to look after him because Limberni can hardly walk. And Peter refers to Limberni's kaffir, which is a South African racist term. Yeah, it's um, it doesn't sound nice, does it? No, it doesn't. Can we leave that on there? Yeah, I mean, it it develops as the film goes on. It does, it does, and and it's going somewhere. Yeah. And as I said, I think that they, in regards to the politics of this film, I think they meant well. Yeah, it's just a little ham-fisted. It is, yeah, and it, it's a bit. At one point later, there's a whole conversation that they have, and and it's a bit. On the nose, isn't it? Yeah, a touch. Mm. So they contact Finn's group to tell them that they have Limberni. Finn's unit now needs to take the airport, while the others make their way to meet up with them. Mm-hmm. Jock takes out one of the guards with a silenced pistol. Finn takes out the other one. Mm-hmm. They quietly make their way into the airport, and in the dining area are a number of soldiers. Sandy, subtly, throws in a grenade. <laughs> They do like their grenades. They do, you know. They're they very do. useful. I'll tell you what as well. That guard that goes for a, a, a pee behind a bush, mm-hmm. did he, didn't he learn? First rule of goon school is you never go for a pee behind a bush. That's right. Because you're going to get stabbed in the face. Yeah. Well, he, yeah. He, he didn't learn it, and now he's dead. That's right. Yeah. Idiot. Yep. The tower hears a noise and a soldier runs out, Finn shoots him, and they take over the airport control tower. It's very brutal again, though, isn't it, all this? Yep. Yeah, it's not messing around. I'm always surprised every time I watch this at just how brutal a film this is. Yeah, what do you think you were watching? A Merchant Ivory production? (laughs) Merchant Ivory's version of Wild Geese. (laughs) Wow, that would be amazing, wouldn't it? Yeah. Meanwhile, Faulkner and others speed along dirt tracks to get to the airport. Mm-hmm. But, back in London, shenanigans are afoot. Shenanigans? Mmm, great bar. Matheson has signed something, and the military advisor that Balfour brought to one of the meetings makes a phone call. He orders that Charlie One is put into effect immediately. Charlie One? Mmm. Back in Zimbala, the trucks arrive at the airport. Faulkner tells Limberni that the plane should be here any minute. And Finn in the control tower is trying to reach the airplane. The airplane's call sign is Iron Man. There's his wild mm-hmm. goose. And mm. Roger Moss says a line that took me a while to understand. He says, Iron Man, <laughs> wild goose, sounds like a finger up a tin man's backside. <laughs> I wrote that line down as well. Yeah, I <laughs> but it took me a second. I, I don't get it. And then I was like, oh, okay, now I get it. Took a second. I think he's referring to um, the Iron Man of the the book. 
the children's book. Yeah. Ted Hughes, Iron Man. All right. Ooh, who's not read a book then, Colin? <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I don't think the character in the film has read this book. Well, yeah, I think that's what they're going for in the story. But whether it makes sense for the character to to say that. I think they're going for a Wizard of Oz link, really. That's more uh, Finn's level. <laughs> what, midgets and uh, straw men? Yeah. And flying monkeys? Yeah. All right. All right. So the plane responds. They hear it approaching. They see it flying closer and moving into a landing position. It lands and goes across the runway. It turns around. And as they go to greet the aircraft, they hear a message saying, Charlie 1, pass them by. The plane speeds up, takes off, leaving them. And the pilot responds, sorry, orders, and flies away. You know, it occurred to me watching this scene that this whole plot, they stole it for the plot of Rambo 2. It's exactly the same. Oh Yeah, it is, because he gets the POWs out, and then yeah. the, the evil bad bad guy people behind the scenes calls it off. and Yeah. Yeah. And then he has to fight his way out. Yeah. Same film. <laughs> it is the same film. Jeez. And then later in his career, Stallone makes The Expendables as well. Every single Stallone film is just wild geese. I'm sure we could work it, work, work it out if we wanted to. Give it a go right now. Oh, no, I need some time. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> got till the end of the podcast. I'll bring it up later. No, no, don't. Finn wants to know who Charlie One is. Falconer talks to the men and tells them they've been double-crossed, but they'll find a way out of there. He tells Jock to get more trucks and any ammunition. And Falconer mm-hmm. privately reveals that Charlie One is Matheson, and that he must have made a new deal, and that Matheson doesn't need and Bernie anymore. And if they're all killed, well, Matheson would have saved himself $500,000. And doesn't someone ask Falconer... Oh, no, Falconer asks someone, do you think that we should surrender? And I think Richard Harris replies, I'd rather have Witty treat my hemorrhoids. That's right. Yeah. Mm. Mm. Another gay joke. Yeah. Rafer needs to come up with a plan in 10 minutes. Rafer says, let's screw Matheson by showing them burning to his people. and It will create a revolt. Faulkner tells Rafer that his first duty is to his men and he has to get them out of there. Rafer mm-hmm. looks at the options. They can't go north because of the river and Delphi's planes would pick them off like ducks when they were on the ferry. East is 600 miles of impossible jungle. West, the countries won't let them in. That leaves south. South is Limburney's own country. There's a village there that Limburney is from. They can screw Matheson and get out. Faulkner doesn't want to do it. But Rafer says it's the only way. They can achieve something out of this whole fucking mess. Let's fight for a cause. Two causes. One, Limburney is the best there is. Faulkner's own words, remember. And two, Matheson. Faulkner finally agrees. Oh, I was gripped through that. <laughs> it's like an audio book. It was. It was amazing. <laughs> you certainly got a grasp on the plot of this film, Colin. <laughs> do you know what, though? After, like, I don't know, 30 years of watching it, this is the first time I do. <laughs> you get it all out of your system. Is that what it is? Yeah, right. <laughs> Back in London, Matheson is celebrating his deal with Endolfi. Matheson says he has the minds and they're backing the copper business. Back in Africa, the trucks and the jeeps are making their way... And there's a bridge over a dried riverbed. Halfway across the bridge, the last truck breaks down with Falconer's jeep trapped behind them. It won't start. They hear a plane approaching. It opens fire on the truck. They shoot back and take cover. 
The plane returns and strafes the men, killing a number of them. <laughs> what an odd way to put it. <laughs> they killed a number of them. <laughs> well, I don't know how many, so I couldn't be accurate. You, you let it down now because you've been so accurate so far. I mean, it's right. been amazing. All right. The plane returns and strafes the men. Only minor characters are killed. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a bit more like it. Okay. It drops a bomb, blowing up one of the trucks and setting some of the men on fire. Again, gruesome. Yeah, uh, doesn't Richard Harris say Jesus? And Roger Moore replies, not even Jesus could get through that. Yes, he does. Mm -hmm. This burning truck is now blocking the bridge. Faulkner, his unit and Limbani will have to take a different route. One man is badly wounded, but they can't leave him for the troops. Faulkner is forced to kill him. It's a good scene, this, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. Again, yeah. very brutal, but you can see, I think Richard Burton does a really good, um, he has a really good way of showing the fact that this is really starting to take a toll on him, I think, and it, and it builds as, as we move towards the end of the movie as well. Yeah, because the only reason anybody is there is because of him. They believed yeah. in him. Mm-hmm. And he's let them all down, he feels, yeah. I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The plane is still around. Faulkner, Peter, Arthur and Limbani have to make their way on foot, but Limbani can't go any further. Peter volunteers to carry Limbani, but keeps calling him Kaffer. Limbani doesn't like the insult, but Peter doesn't stop using it. Mm-hmm. So the two separate groups are now resting. Rafer's group are hiding from the plane. In the other group, Limbani wants to talk to Peter. Peter just wants him to go to sleep, man. Limbani says, that's an improvement man? over... That's what he says. He says, go to sleep, man. And then Ka- Limbani says, that's an improvement over Kaffer. Okay. Yeah, it, just seemed, it just seemed strange coming out of your mouth. Uh, oh, I'm always using it. I'm always going like, hey, man, how's it going? Like that. Oh, don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Peter tells Limbani that saving his life... quite nauseous, then. <laughs> Peter tells Limbani that saving his life means one thing to him, to live his life on the farm as a free man in a country he loves. Limbani says, well, that's good enough. Only one thing to remember about Africa. Today, freedom is only a word for a new oppressor, black or white, north or south. If you want to live here, you better think about tomorrow. So it's all a bit on the nose, isn't it? Yeah, but we're starting to see a bond between the two. Yeah, yeah. It's a shame. I mean, it's a shame because of what's going to happen. I mean, <laughs> Woo, you big racist. <laughs> no, I mean because of what's going to happen soon. Wow. <laughs> wow. I didn't realise who I was working with. That came out wrong, didn't it? it well. Did, yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Move on. Rafer's unit arrives at Kalima, which is Lumbani's home village. And they send a patrol into the village. Back with Faulkner, and they've been walking for a while, and they take another rest. And Peter and Limbani have a conversation about who is carrying who in Africa. Limbani points out that they need each other. The whole world is betting group against group, destroying Africa. We have to learn to care for each other, or our Africa will be nothing but a burnt-out battlefield. And Limbani is slowly winning Peter over. Limbani says, we have to forgive you for the past, and you have to forgive us for the present, he tells him. Peter replies, you're beginning to sound good to me, man. Maybe we need you. Maybe you are just the man. There's a lot of man in this. Yeah, I, I added one. I, 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 yeah, okay. 
Yeah. You felt it needed it, did you? I did, yeah, the scene. So hold on, you're, you're rewriting these movies now as we're going <laughs> yeah, along. Is that what you're doing? That's what I'm doing. All right. Yeah. Oh, okay. I just know we could do that as well. I just think, well, you've been doing character voices for people who don't speak, so I thought I could just do that. Plus, I added the man just to annoy you. All right, yeah. Because you, you, you don't like doing that, do you? Annoying you? Mm. No. It, it worries me <laughs> deeply. Oh, I wish people could see the look on your face. <laughs> the most insincere face I've ever seen. And I've seen some insincere faces in my time. <laughs> Faulkner orders them to move on. Peter carries Lombardi his back and says, Hold on tight, bloke. Oh, I stopped using the word kaffa. The bonding. Mm. Mm-hmm. Unlike Roger Moore. I don't know. He's bonding a bit in this movie, isn't he? Is he? A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Or, or is bonding marring? Well, it's very Moorish bonding anyway, isn't it? It is, yeah. You, just you have a little it. bit of bond, you've got to have some more. Wow, that was amazing, wasn't it? Oh, amazing, just sounding dirty. <laughs> you could put that on a poster, couldn't you, for an old Bond movie? Go on, what would you put on the poster for the old Bond movie? You, you could say, if you're going to have some bond, you've got to have some more. Yeah, I could just say more Bond. Yeah, all right. That was bad. <laughs> Shorter. <laughs> Back at Kalima, one of Rafer's soldiers accidentally kills a pig and this causes a Catholic priest to come running out and screaming at them. His name... <laughs> what? What was he just lurking there? <laughs> waiting for this pig to die? <laughs> Isn't that what Catholic priests do? That's not what they do. <laughs> They do some stuff, but pigs aren't one of them, I don't think. Okay. His name is Fairfax Georg Hagen. Mm-hmm. Rafer knows him. It's a very he's awkward pl- name to say. Oh, yeah. He's played by Frank Finley, who's our life force connection. Yes, A lot of connections true. this episode. Yeah. Mm. Georg Hagen wants them out of his village, but Rafer talks to him. Mm-hmm. Back with the other group, Arthur is having a drink. He hears something. Then he sees movement. And he opens fire as Endolfi soldiers attack. Arthur tells the others to get their lovely asses out of there while he holds the fort. The others make their escape. His gun jams. A soldier approaches with a machete. And there's a lot of weird dialogue from Arthur that we probably should skip over. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we should. He fights one. He's got, he's, he's got a big chopper, though, hasn't he, this guy? Massive. Yeah, surprises Arthur. But I tell you what, Uh-oh. I bet Arthur's hacked off. Is there a sound effect for tumbleweed? I just, I just had some wind going. Oh, that was a good one. Yeah. <laughs> and of uh, course, yes, Arthur is hacked to death. He's laughing on the inside. Well, he's inside, and now he's outside. <laughs> yeah. So, so we could see it, really. I think he's just a puddle yeah. at this point. Mm. Yeah, not so witty now. <laughs> What's his name? Arthur Whitty. I know I got it. Oh, okay, just check it because I couldn't. I couldn't tell whether you were laughing or having a coronary. <laughs> it could be either. Who knows? Who knows? Let's hope it's Who the did. first. Yeah. What? Hang on. <laughs> Whichever one that <laughs> Which was. Which one did I say first? I don't know. <laughs> so the others are across the river. Peter and Jesse providing covering the fire. Then they catch up with Faulkner and Lindbergh. Peter takes over carrying Limbani. More soldiers approach. 
Faulkner shoots them, blows them up with... A grenade. Subtly, he does. One soldier... <laughs> One guy does it. Yeah, oh, go yeah, on. go on. <laughs> <laughs> One soldier overdoes his death scene dramatically. It's just the spurting guy. And the guy who screams just goes... Arr! Yeah, and then he just falls over sideways, but he really milks it. Uh, he's there, and did you notice that the blood is that? We talked about this before. I think it was in the Hammer movie that we yeah. did. It's that really bright seventies paint blood that they used <laughs> back I, then. I forgot to do research into why they did that. Mm. I meant to do that because I was oh, cu- we'll curious. We'll, we'll have plenty of time for you to do the research because we've got a Hammer episode coming up soon. Actually, quicker than you think, but we'll talk about that. All right, okay. Peter continues on carrying Limbani and runs into two soldiers. He is shot, but continues running while carrying Limbani, then collapses. Peter tries to pick up Limbani, but collapses again. And Limbani urges Peter to move on, but Peter is dead. With some very nasty um, dribble coming out of his mouth as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm. Rafer's unit meets up with them and they make their way into Kalima. Now, they're holed up in Kalima with nowhere to run to and with nothing to fight with. Further, Giokagan arrives and takes the village elders to in to see Limbani. Limbani speaks to them. Mm-hmm. And the priest says that Falconer is trying to start a civil war and that he's against him. But also, Giokagan says there's a few miles away there's an abandoned airfield with an old Dakota airplane. Limbani says the village is willing to fight, but they will die, and Limbani can't allow that. The villagers will have to wait for his return. Falconer tells him they'll get him out. They need to get to that plane. Finn will take some men to take the plane, while Falconer and Rafer bring Limbani along later. Falconer is starting to believe in more than just the money. He's starting to believe in Limbani and what he could do to the nation. I think he always kind of um, had that about him to begin with, and he suppressed it, I think. I always got the impression right from the beginning of the movie that that he did have, not necessarily morals, but he did have ideals. But he's so jaded at this point that he's probably pushed them right down. Yeah, and maybe he thinks this is his last, yeah. his last mission, his last attempt, and mm-hmm. this will be perfect because of what happened before with the failed one. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I can I've see got, that. I have to say as well that watching um, Richard Burton and Frank Finley in this scene trying to outact each other is, is quite an amazing thing to watch, really. <laughs> they're, they're really they're really cheering the scenery, aren't they? It's like, <laughs> they're like turned up to 11. Yeah, they are. Really going for it. Yeah, they're both good. Mm. It's classic British acting. Yeah. So they get to the older airplane, and Dolphy's troops are uh, getting closer. Finn tells Father O'Hagan to get on his ass and leave, and... The, Priest climbs on his donkey while saying, Good luck to you, you godless sons of bitches. And Finn replies, Hmm, that's the most moving benediction I've ever heard. Oh no, not benediction. <laughs> yep, benediction. Bet he does. Ah, you didn't notice that, did you, until I said it? <laughs> no, I wasn't, well, I did, but I wasn't going to do it. You forced oh. me into it. <laughs> If you hadn't said anything, we'd have kept going. Well, this is off in the way, but I have to say, if you hadn't have said something, I, I would have thought it was an amazing amount of restraint on your part not to. 
I don't have restraint. Restraints, yes, not restraint. <laughs> wow, all right. The troops are approaching. Finn sets up a field of fire and guard posts. Sandy sees the first troops arrive and, and subtly, lobs a grenade. <laughs> they don't run out. They're on. They're on unlimited. These grenades, you know. They... As Endolfi's men. <laughs> He's rewinding again. <laughs> what happens when you're 88 miles per hour? Do we go back to the beginning of the podcast? Hello and welcome to Retrospection. <laughs> Second time I've done that gag. And we'll keep doing it. As Endolfi's. Oh fuck's sake. As the African dictator's men scream in advance, Sandy's men waited till they are close enough and fire. Smooth. Yeah, Very thanks. smooth. Yeah. Gunfire erupts. Grenades are thrown. Meanwhile, Faulkner's men are trying to get to the plane. It's a running battle. Move, shoot, hide. Move, shoot, hide. Faulkner's men are slowly being wiped out. He orders them to get Limberni on the stretcher and to the plane. And that cover should be made on the edge of the earth strip. Bullets are flying everywhere. Finn tries to get the plane started. More of Endolfi's troops run in. Faulkner's men run to the airplane, carrying Limberni on a stretcher. Finn gets the engines running on the ancient Dakota. He yells at Faulkner to hurry up. The men get Limberni into the plane. They scramble in. Rafer and Jock are still giving covering fire. Faulkner reaches them and tells them that when his group reached the airstrip, they should stop and head for the plane, and they'll return the covering fire. Rafer says, hurry up, because they're running out of ammo. As they run... Sandy is killed. Rafer and his men start desperately fleeing to the plane as it taxis down the runway. Faulkner yells at Rafer to hurry as he fires from the doorway. But Rafer is shot in the leg. He can't make the plane. He begs Faulkner to kill him. Faulkner can't do it. Rafer starts yelling his son's name as Endolfi's troops approach him. Finally, with Rafer screaming a meal, Faulkner shoots him. As the plane speeds up, Finn is shot in the leg, but he manages to take off, and they fly into the sunset. Rafer lays dead on the runway. But there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, isn't there? For a start, who's the young guy that gets killed? And why is he there? Uh, Bob. Yeah, who is he? Bob. You keep saying his name, but it doesn't tell me anything. <laughs> it's Bob. Why is he there? I don't know, because he's, he inter- he's not in the interviews, is he? No. Do you think there was a scene cut? Well, I read that they that um, you knew he got more. Sc- you knew this all along. You just led me down a garden path just to I show think, no, you that way. No, no. I read that he uh, he got more screen time than what he thought he was going to get because he was because being the youngest guy in the in the cast, he he was the one that could carry uh, Limbani a lot. And he was sixty two. <laughs> <laughs> There's also a really good line when um, Sandy and Faulkner are, are running for the plane. And um, Faulkner says to Sandy, when there's no one around, you can call me Alan. And he says, yes, sir. Yeah, right. <laughs> but yeah, this whole bit, especially at the end when he has to kill him, you can really see it on, on Burton. He does a really good um, show of, the, of, of you know, how it's just tearing him apart inside. He's had mm-hmm. to kill, he's basically his only friend, really. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. I say, you know, it, it is quite a shocking move for the film, although they kind of signposted it by giving him a kid. <laughs> yeah, they did, didn't they? I you suppose, know, but... yeah. And then putting so much <laughs> emphasis on that fact. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. But no, it's 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 a good um, it's a good moment. I think you wouldn't get that in a film today. I don't think. No, I don't think you would either. Everyone would get away. Yep. So in the plane, where two Finn asks, Faulkner says he had to kill Rafer, or the soldiers would have cut him up to pieces. It's almost like he's trying to convince himself that he did the right thing. Mm-hmm. But he's told that Limburney is getting worse. He goes back to see him. It was a very good try, Limburney says. Jesse tells Faulkner that there was nothing you could do about Rafer. It was your only choice. Mm-hmm. And Finn tells him that air traffic control in Rhodesia won't let them land. Faulkner needs positive proof that Limburney is on board. Limburney tells Faulkner to write something down. And as Rhodesian air traffic control continue to refuse to let them land, Faulkner reads out what Limburney told them. The plane is running out of fuel and is now on one engine. The engine chokes. Finn is also losing blood. He was shot in the leg. Uh, but he just ties a bit of scarf around it. He's all right. Yeah, that's what you do, right? I've done it loads of times. That's what I do. I mean, I mean every time, every time I take one in the leg, you know. What do you do when you take one in the ass? <laughs> <laughs> that's a whole different ball game, trust me. Oh, yeah, it's a different ball game, all right. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. It is. It is. Just, <sighs> no amount of scarf can uh, plug that one. Nope. Oh, it's all getting cut out. It's disgusting. Leave it in. That's what they said to you, right? <laughs> it's got to come out eventually. Yeah, eventually. It all comes out in the wash. Mm. Uh, the air traffic control calls back and tells them they have been cleared to land. The people will go out and make lights for them. But, Limburney has died. Whole fucking film, waste of time. Yeah, all these people that he's got killed yep. for no reason. But we get a close, an angry close-up of Burton's eyes, don't we? So we cut to London. Matheson is getting ready for the end of his night. He dismisses his butler and pours himself a nice drink. Sits down at the chess table that he's playing on his own. Mm-hmm. Faulkner enters with a gun. Now Matheson has contracts out on Faulkner everywhere. Faulkner reveals he has his own contracts. He wants to look in Matheson's safe. There's a lot of widows and orphans that need money. Matheson hands over the cash and says there's more if he lets him live, but Faulkner would have to trust him. Faulkner says he had a speech, and while saying he's not going to give that speech, he gives a speech. (laughs) And it's a speech. Oh God, is it ever. Mm -hmm. And he turns down Matheson's arrangement, then shoots him with a silenced pistol, puts the money in a briefcase, and leaves. Outside, Finn is waiting for him. This whole scene, it's kind of what I would imagine a a much older Bond could be like. You know, a a slightly over-the-hill older Bond in his late 50s, you know. I think that'd be good. Yeah, Yeah, I'd I'd like that. How old's Daniel Craig now? I think he turns 50 this year. Perfect. Let him do it. They'd never do that, because they'd always try and play him younger, wouldn't they? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Pierce Brosnan would be the perfect age for it. Yeah, he would, but... But it's Pierce Brosnan. <laughs> <laughs> Dalton. Oh, Dalton would be excellent. He would be perfect, wouldn't he? Absolutely. Yeah. We're not biased or anything, but... <laughs> <laughs> He's not a dad or anything. <laughs> but I wish he was. Oh. <laughs> yeah, you and me both. <laughs> so, days later, Emil, Rafer's son, is watching a game of football. Faulkner mm-hmm. walks up to him. Let's 
talk about your father. Emil nods, and they walk off together, and the film ends. I'm not too happy about this school's security policy. They just let some strange man in an overcoat <laughs> just walk off with a kid on a rugby field. <laughs> ah, it's the 70s. He bunged him a few quid. I bet that's not all he was bunging either. Yeah. Yeah. That ending always, almost, brings a tear to my eye. You really have found this heart under your bed, haven't you? I'm telling you, this ending, I it, it always makes me feel upset. Oh. So there we go. And that's the end of The Wild Geese. So, Paul, what do you think? Well, putting aside the politics, which I don't think probably played well even at the time. I think they kind of misjudged it a bit. Although, as I say, I think their um, their intentions were, were sincere. I think that this oh, it's a good old-fashioned adventure movie. It's got a great cast, British legends. All right, the story isn't anything special, but... Uh, and the action, you got to admit, the action's kind of passable, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I don't think it's very well done. Yeah. But I enjoy it because of the people that are involved in it. You know, all the actors in it are watchable. Um, Burton and Harris in particular are great. <laughs> yeah, um, I'll go on the poster. Actors are watchable. It's <laughs> <laughs> high praise indeed. And of course we've got Roger. He's always dependable, isn't he, Roger? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turns up, he does what he does a Roger. <laughs> and that's what that's all you want him to do. Who could ask for anything more? I will it's funny you say, oh very good. Thanks. But it's funny you should say that because I, I would have liked to have seen a bit more of him in this film. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a spin off, just the Roger Moore character. Yeah, yeah. It could be that could be on the poster. What? More more. Um... <laughs> What's wrong with that? No, that's no, great. Well, you know what I mean? He, he, he kind of, he's in it, but he doesn't really do much. Right. You know, he lands the plane at the end, and that's about it. Yeah. He's just there because he's Roger Moore, and he's huge at this point, isn't he? That's true, he is, yes. Yeah. But I always enjoy this film, and I always have enjoyed it. Uh, I, as you say, when you mentioned it earlier, I've been watching this film for 30 years, and I, so have I. Mm-hmm. So it's a definite hit for me, this film. Wow. Love it. Yeah. Right. So, for me, this is very similar to Who Does Wins, another Ewan Lloyd production. Yeah. In that a lot of it, the politics and attitudes, I should have a problem with, personally, because it goes, doesn't really fit in with what I think and feel. But no. I'd say I love this film. Mm-hmm. And I found it hard to make notes for it because I found myself actually watching it. Mm-hmm. And then I'd be like, oh, I've not made notes for the last 15 minutes because I've been just watching it. And I think it's mm-hmm. because Richard Burton and Richard Harris are really good. Yeah. Um, yeah they're they just are. so... As you, and it sounded like you were being facetious about it, but they are watchable. You know you know exactly what I mean, though, don't you? I, I didn't mean it... I, I know we're joking just for comedy effect, but... but... Comedy? Wait, we do yeah. that now? Shit. Occasionally, occasionally. But I meant it sincerely as well, that, that, that they are they are just great. Yeah. They're always great. Yeah. The action sequences, I, I don't mind them. They're okay. It's got some great dialogue. And it has some brilliant character actors. And even the lesser roles, the actors they chose for them are really good at what they do. Mm-hmm. Even though the film, like you said, it's over two hours long, I think. It is. Yeah, it's a... doesn't feel like it, though. No, it flies by. 
Right. Yeah, I was quite I was quite surprised. Yeah, and Roger Moore is of course great. Mm-hmm. Um so for me it's a very big hit. Wow, who'd have thought that, eh? Yeah, who'd have thought that, right? <laughs> Basically this episode is just us enjoying ourselves again. Yeah, yeah. It's nice it's nice <laughs> to watch a film we actually enjoy once in a while. I know, I know. You can't win them Talking all. of which Oh, what are we doing next week then? <laughs> On our next episode I'm going to do a little switcheroo with you, Paul. All right. And we're going to travel back to the world of Hammer and visit Twins of Evil from 1971. Get in there. Yeah. Peter Cushion, Dennis Price in a tale of devilish cult. Now, you've been called something similar to that in the past, right, Paul? I've no idea what you mean. Yeah. So, yeah, I thought we'd do that because I don't think we've done a Hammer or a low-budget British production for quite a while, so I thought we should. Uh, you, you know I'm on board for that. So if you'd like to suggest a film or TV show for us to do in the future, then you can actually contact us at retrospection at email.com. And if you'd like to sponsor us to keep our old episodes online, you can reach us at patreon.com forward slash retrospection. You can also enjoy our playlist of all the themes and songs from the films that we've reviewed on spotify you can also find retrospection podcast on facebook and you can get us on twitter at retrospecky so thank you very much for downloading this episode and i hope you'll join us again in the future goodbye bye